Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half an hour. Now, the man I'm speaking with today is someone I've wanted to interview uh, for quite a long time. As most of you will know, the theme of this show is, is taking a look at culture and taking a look at how people have responded in very difficult circumstances to the human rights issues of our day. And the man that I'm speaking with responded to the circumstances he was in in a way that's just nothing short of extraordinary. His name is Carl Wilkins, and when the genocide in Rwanda broke out in 1994, he was an American missionary in Rwanda. And history knows him and will know him as the only American to refuse to leave the country when the genocide broke out, to refuse to leave his Rwandan neighbors and his Rwandan friends. He watched from his house as his wife and three children were evacuated from their home in Kigali. His story is very incredible. It's very inspiring. And the things that he saw and the things that he did set him apart from the response of, of so many of the Western powers to what was going on in Rwanda as bands of Hutu exterminators, bands of Hutu thugs massacred over a million of their fellow Tutsi countrymen. And this all started on April 6, 1994, when Hutu President Juvenal Habariman had boarded a plane bound for Kigali, Rwanda, following a one-day summit for different regional leaders and delegates, but this plane never reached its destination and it was shot down. It was either shot down by members of the Tutsi rebel group, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, or the Hutu extremist group, Hutu Power. We may never know who fired the actual rockets, but what we do know is that within hours of the crash, orders were given for the Hutu extremist group to begin the massacre of every Tutsi man, woman, and child. And within 100 days of those orders being given, over 800,000 Tutsis and Hutu moderates were slaughtered. As Westerners fled the country, Carl Wilkins was one of the few people who decided to stay. This is his story. In 1994, when the genocide started in Rwanda, almost all foreigners left the country. And you were a missionary at the time, and you didn't leave. Why not? Well, we had been living there for four years, you know, building schools and operating clinics and getting building relationships. And when, when the plane was shot down and the embassy said everybody's going, they said very clearly, no Rwandans. We're driving south. You cannot bring any Rwandans in your vehicles. If you bring Rwandans, when we get to a roadblock, it will cause trouble. No Rwandans. And we had this young lady who lived and worked in our home, been with us for probably three years. The kids loved her. My wife and I loved her. We just were, And she had a Tootsie ID card, which marked her as the enemy, you know, at that time. And, um, and you know, my wife and I, we talked, we prayed in the bedroom, and we just said, we can't just leave her and a young man who was also a watchman. Um, can't just leave them there to be killed. So the decision definitely started with those two people being right there in our house. And even though they never asked, it was just pretty, pretty obvious to Teresa and I that uh, that we couldn't just leave them there to be killed. When you decided to stay, you obviously had to discuss this with your wife first. How did that discussion go? <laughs> well, honestly, it wasn't. It wasn't a discussion of whether to stay or not. I think that was pretty much a given. The question was, you know, just how are we gonna 
how are we going to do this? I mean, we had actually talked about the possibility of evacuation before, but when it came right down to it, um, I think our conversation was more like uh, two weeks maximum. This thing cannot last more than two weeks, and probably in three weeks you and the kids will come back and, and uh, you know, life will go on. But, um, you know, it was right there in those final final hours and then minutes. I mean, she made chocolate chip cookies for the kids, and we we're trying to make it as as much like an adventure for the kids as possible. But I know when, when I helped her into the camper and the kids and said goodbye, it was was a really heavy feeling in my heart. Did the American embassy and, and the other foreigners try to convince you to leave? Did they tell you you were insane for staying? Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the consulate officer, a really sharp young lady, um, you know, she was just doing her best. There were about 250 Americans, 257, I think, Americans. And when I told her on the, over the HF radio that um, I was sending my wife and children, I was coordinating the evacuation of a bunch of Americans, actually, and I said, you know, the folks from the dental clinic are coming to the ambassador's home. I'm sending my wife and kids to the ambassador ambassador's home and she says what wait a minute you you what do you mean sending and i said i'm you know i'm not leaving and and she's she said no you you don't have a choice everybody's leaving and so we had a little back and forth we knew each other well and Uh respected each other and 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 in the end she says okay well then you need to sign on a paper that would you she asked me if i would sign on a paper that i refuse the help of the united states government to leave rwanda and send that paper with my wife to the ambassador's home and and so that's kind of how that that conversation ended. But then there were a couple more attempts by UN soldiers trying to convince me to leave. But um, you know, finally the the Belgian commander who was taking the last of his Belgian troops out came by my house, and you know, I said, "Thank you for your concern, but you're actually putting your life at risk, your men's life at risk, and uh, and you're drawing attention, the unwanted attention, to my house. Please don't come back here anymore." And, and so that was kind of the final signing off of external pressure to leave. And what happened then? Well, for three weeks, we couldn't get out of our house. You know, what what it was then was um, the government announced a 24-7 curfew, and nobody was allowed out on the streets. And so we're just kind of kicking into survival mode. You know, we got to collect rainwater to have water. And I actually had invited a, another couple, a Rwandan pastor and his wife, to come to my home. And they had Hutu ID cards, which meant they weren't marked for extermination. But um, it also gave a, a, a much more of a support group. She would buy, she would buy stolen food over the fence. He was this incredible source of counsel and wisdom. So that, you know, when when the government did at the end of three weeks lift the 24/7 curfew and said if you have a legitimate reason to be out, come to the uh, city headquarters and get a travel permit. You know, he's the one at that time that said, Carl, if you if you want to do anything outside the house here, you're going to have to build the relationship with the people who are in power. And so I started building relationships with people who, some of, most of them are in prison today or, or had fled the country. The top guy that I dealt with most of the time is serving a life sentence for genocide, crimes against humanity. But he's the one who actually directed me towards two orphanages. You know, when I came out, I said... Uh, I'm here with Adra. We don't have much, but we want to help. And, and, you know, it wasn't like he's the leader of the killers. It's like he's the mayor of the city and, and presenting this side of compassion and caring for those who were in trouble and directed me to an orphanage. And their greatest need was water. Little ones were 
were being buried in the parking lot who were dying from diarrhea. And so I started this process of of hauling water, finding a vehicle, finding containers, finding fuel, building relationships with whoever I could to get what I needed to bring food and water and medicine to what ended up being three groups of orphans around the city. When did you realize that this wasn't just a spasm of violence but was turning into an actual genocide? Well, we knew right at the beginning that this is much worse than anything we'd ever experienced before. We had had some, what I would call, um, sporadic massacres. We, You know, in one section of the country, you'd, you'd have 100 people killed, or another section, you'd have 50 people killed. But now, with the shooting down of the plane, we're on the radio, our, our high-frequency radio, talking to every corner, an orphanage in the east, a hospital in the west, and everywhere, the killing. So, so while we didn't use the word genocide, um, right pretty much from the first day before Teresa and the kids even left on the on the fourth day, um, we knew this was this was something much, much worse than ever before, and we knew it was directed against the Tootsies. So in effect, you look back, while we weren't using the term, I think we knew at that point it was, you know, everything that, that defines genocide. Our, our hope was that the international community would respond. We had 2,500 UN soldiers, and so it was a real shock when, when all of a sudden we heard the soldiers are leaving. And, you know, I kept listening to the BBC every day thinking somebody's going to do something, you know, America, the French, somebody. And so that was the real, I mean, you know, term calling it genocide. Um, I don't actually remember when we started using that word. I do know the media in about less than three weeks was using that word. But for me personally, that, that wasn't part of the uh, part of the vocabulary, although the the intent was very, very clear. When you say that on the fourth day you realized it was getting bad, the fourth day after what? Well, uh, the fourth day after the plane was shot down is when my wife and children left. But I would even say the day after the plane was shot down, people are being killed in our neighborhood, and I'm hearing reports from every corner of the country of people being killed. And, and then I talked to the Red Cross, you know, on perhaps day three, four, or five in those early days, and the Red Cross is starting to confirm unimaginable numbers. When I finally got out after three weeks or four weeks, um, the Red Cross was saying, you know, we're over 200,000, and we we kind of we find it uh, nearly impossible to continue counting. What sort of things did you see while you were in Rwanda? Well, the first day I went out, there's roadblocks all over the place. Ordinary citizens have been told, you've got to defend your neighborhood. Drag a tree across the street, put some beer cases out there, whatever, make a roadblock and start you know, checking everybody's ID coming through. When I came out after three weeks, it wasn't like the streets were lined with people who had been killed. Mm -hmm. Most of those were picked up. There was an occasional body here or there. When I got to our offices, there was trash and garbage all over the parking lot, and in the middle of it, here was uh, a corpse, and and uh, half of the leg was eaten off. Our our dog, our watchdog, I guess, had been surviving that way. It was it was real chaos. Um, people's in you drive through neighborhoods and all kinds of things from the homes are drug out in the yard or in the street. It was it was very chaotic on the one hand, but then very uh, structured in terms of roadblocks on on the other hand. Um, I remember seeing in the marketplace a man face down 
with um, with a big radio boom box in each hand, and I guess somebody had stopped the looting by shooting him. It was it was really really horrible. Did you ever see a confrontation between the Hutus and the Tutsis? I came upon massacre sites fresh after they'd happened, the day after they happened, and I guess the most uh, the most memorable and the most tense and the largest confrontation. Um, it's not like you had Hutus and Tutsis facing each other. It uh-huh. was it was at the orphanage, the biggest orphanage with over 400 people where I was bringing food and water. I showed up one day, and a gang of the Interhamwe had given a warning the day before. We know there's Tutsis hiding in here. Empty the place. We're coming back tomorrow, and if this place isn't empty, we'll kill everybody here. We don't care if they're Hutu or Tutsi. Unbeknownst to me, that threat had happened the day before. I show up with water this particular day towards the end of June, and uh, within a couple of minutes, all of a sudden, these guys start materializing with their with their machine guns, their machetes. But but they stopped when they saw me, and and um, a two to three hour type of standoff followed. Eventually, we managed to get a hold of of um, some police who came, and and that was even really tough at that point because the the guy in charge, the police officer, said, look, you need to go talk to my commander. We can't spend the night. We're too outnumbered here. And and I didn't know if he was just trying to get rid of me because police were known to have been participating in the slaughter. That was a really hard decision to to finally trust this police officer and go look for more help. And, and it just you know, things continued to get more un, uh, bizarre. I, I ended up in uh, talking to the bogus prime minister. They had killed the prime minister, and the extremists had put in their own. And this guy, Kambande is his name, was make, making a surprise visit to Kigali, the capital. And and uh, and uh, a secretary told me, ask him. And it just seemed un, unimaginable that I would ask this. He's one of three guys in charge of the genocide to stop a massacre. But... But he did. I asked him, and he stopped it. And a couple of days later, they moved those kids to a little bit safer place. And and so it was, um, yeah, the the key in this whole thing for me really came down to relationships. And uh-huh. whether it was, you know, a thief on the street supplying me with powdered milk or whether it was the prime minister stopping a genocide, it, it, you know, the, the biggest impact I could make was always going to be dependent on the relationships I was able to form. How did you get the strength to see all of these things and, and do all the things that you did and, and, and face the people that you faced and talk to the people that you talked to? Yeah. You know, you look back at it and it is definitely overwhelming. And there were days, situations, you're, you know, my car is surrounded by, by eight guys with machine guns. And, it, and it, there's so many moments that seemed uh, impossible but I think that that um, having a mission, you know, pretty clear mission, get food, get water to these kids, got to get from point A to point B. You, you just did that one day at a time, and you just put one foot in front of the other. And, and in terms of the heart and the head, you know, nourishment or courage or something, it, you know, I think. Uh, there's no doubt for me my my connection with my maker and and yet i don't want to just say god gave it you know i think that's that's short selling this story it was you saw courage in other people my wife's support and courage was invaluable um little kids helping me clean barrels while snipers are shooting at us you know was invaluable source of strength and and so while i believe that you know it it comes from my maker i think 
you look around and you see it around you and that and that um that definitely uh is 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 essential i think to to not lose hope and and every night my wife and i made a promise we would read psalm 34 together and so there's definitely this one-on-one thing with god going on but there's also this uh sense that you're not alone as you look at the the people around you though sometimes there weren't many um there seemed to always be somebody who who you felt was trying to do their best to make a positive difference and that that's hugely encouraging so you were in Rwanda for all 100 days of the genocide yeah we were living there for 4 years before and and never left on 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 the 4th of July when the RPF the Rwandan Patriotic Front uh drove the these extremists these genocidaires those who were doing the killing out of the capital um I was there her can tell you stories about that day and then and then I was there for another week to 10 days while they they cleared the rest of the country and and then came out and spent what ended up being seven months out with my wife and children before our our organization felt the Adventist Church before they felt safe for us to go back in. But then we were able to go back for a year and a half, which was a huge gift for all of us. What sort of what sort of things that happened during the genocide in Rwanda? Uh, it affected the way you look at things now. It sort of changed the way you were a missionary before, but of course, you know, you were the only Westerner in in one of the most brutal genocides that's happened in, in recent history. How did that change change your outlook and and the way that you do things? Because your example has been used by many people to show that, you know, being a missionary or being a humanitarian, it shouldn't be you know a jet in jet out sort of thing. It should be sharing the experience with the people and doing what you can for them, you know, for better or for worse. Well, you know, there. While I was the only American there in Kigali, there were five Catholic Sisters of Charity from Spain. And when you talk about sticking with people for better or for worse, uh-huh. these ladies were incredible. And, and there was a Frenchman, long hair, long beard. The kids called him Jesus. His name was actually Mark Vader, um, who stayed with a group of orphans. There were there were probably ten Europeans who stayed. I was the only American there. But but um, the, the stories that shape, I mean... Definitely, their stories were hugely encouraging, but but we as foreigners had a certain advantage. There was a, a kind of a general respect for foreigners, and and not an immunity, but definitely an advantage being a foreigner. The the things that just really astounded me would be would be like the second night of the genocide when a gang came to our gate. We didn't even know about it till the next morning because neighbor ladies, just ordinary unarmed ladies, while we say they were armed with stories, which are the most powerful uh-huh. weapons we have. But in any case, these ladies came and stood in front of the gate and said no to these guys who were, um, who were I don't know if they were just going to rob us, if they were going to kill The ladies thought they would kill us. But, but you see acts of courage by what would normally, you know, in other circumstances, just say very um, normal, you know, Rwandans. Um, you, one of my coworkers, Gasikwa, had 40 people in his home. And then at the, the big orphanage, uh, Damascus Simba was just really demonstrating um, a sense that, you know, there's something much more important than your tribe. As as his orphanage collected from 80 kids, it went up to over 400, with some widows mixed in there. And I look at the stories, the experience of those Rwandans 
um, Harry down the street at another orphanage who stepped up from being the watchman to being the director when the couple in charge evacuated. Um, and I and I, I think to myself, wow, you know, no matter what situation you're in, you, you think it's impossible. I think about those people, and I think it's possible. You know, you just, you just, you can't give up. There's, there's so many situations that seem like you're going to have to choose the lesser of two evils. But, you know, I think about that day with the, with the orphanage being surrounded. And in the end, I'm asking the prime minister to stop a massacre. It's like, if we quit too soon, we're probably going to, we might be just on the edge of that C option. When A and B don't look good, that C option is there. We just got to hang on longer. You know, and then the lessons, I think, come afterwards, even to me, equally or even more powerful. The way the Rwandans are recovering, um, the way that they're not, so many of them are not allowing the genocide and what they lost, what was taken from them to define them, but how they're focusing on what they have. You know, they just prayed to God that one family member would survive and how they're rebuilding after that, how they're forgiving. The forgiveness stories of Rwanda just... They challenge anybody who hears them to think again about giving people a second and third chance. If the people in Rwanda can do it in the most horrific situations, surely we could be a bit more gracious. So so those lessons just continue. I was just back there two weeks ago, and uh, no, a week ago actually, and each time I go back, I'm just really inspired by the courage, the resilience, the forgiveness, the role of women in Rwanda is just an example to the world now, both in government and the private sector. We, I guess the final thing would be you just come out of this thing much more intentional about looking for good, much more um, decided that, you know what, good is there in every person. I know that might sound weird from someone unbelievable, from someone who came from this situation, but... But I do believe that the potential for good is in every single person. And it might just be one good thing in a year or something, but I've seen people who are doing the worst of the worst then do an act of, of compassion. And it makes me think, look, if it's possible for some of those people, it's possible for anybody. We just gotta believe it's there. And then we got a better chance of accessing it. Oh, Carl, thank you so much for taking the time. Ah, thank you. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, you were listening to Carl Wilkins, the only American to remain in Rwanda during the genocide, bringing us a vivid example of someone who stood up in unbelievably difficult circumstances, somebody who stood up for his friends and his neighbors and distinguished himself possibly far beyond what he ever thought he would and gives us all an example and helps us all to ask the question, what can we do in our town, in our city, in our country? Which group of people is being victimized here? And what can we do to follow the example of Carl Wilkins and stand up for them to the best of our ability? Thanks so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.